Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here with our guest today, Pastor Mark DeMoz, who is the, the directional leader and lead pastor of Mosaic Church of Central Arkansas, just outside Little Rock, and president of the Mosaic's Global Network, convener of the Once Every Three Years National Multi-Ethnic Church Conference. He also serves as adjunct professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. He's the author of two incredibly insightful books, the first one called Disruption, Repurposing the Church to Redeem the Community, and the one we want to feature today, which is, is brand new, just, it will just be out, called The Coming Revolution in Church Economics. But it's the subtitle that really caught my attention, Why Tithes and Offerings Are No Longer Enough and what you can do about it. So, Mark, thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate you coming on with us today. Hey, my pleasure, Scott, Sean. So uh, honored to be with you and look forward to the conversation. Now, tell us a little bit about when you planted uh, Mosaic Church, because as I read in both of your books, you did something that was pretty outside the box when you and your team planted the church. You went into an under-resourced area, sat out an abandoned building, things that most people don't do when they're planning churches. So tell us a little bit about how Mosaic Church got started. Yeah, well, I had been a youth pastor for 18 years, and the final eight of those years, I was at a large, a very uh, effective, wonderful, actually, mega church uh, here in Little Rock in the suburbs, a church that when I got there as a youth pastor in uh, 1993, the church had 2,000. Eight years later, there were 5,000 people in, uh, in that church. My youth group grew from 150 to 600 kids, just an explosive time of growth. Uh, and, and an otherwise amazing church, uh, even still to this day, great folks, great people. But in the late 90s, um, uh, I began to look at that church a bit differently. And in conjunction with the 40th anniversary of Little Rock Central High School here in Little Rock, uh, I took a good look around the church one day and realized the only people of color in this otherwise amazing church were janitors. And that began to bother my spirit. I didn't know why at the time. This is 1997, 98. I didn't really understand what the uh, why that bothered me, but something about that did not sit well and, and didn't seem right. And and so what I did uh, in my case, I had at that time a master's in exegesis uh, from Western Seminary. I, um, I I basically, in a sense, threw out all my notes from seminary as far as the nature of the New Testament church, church planning, growth and development, that and the, what at the end of the twentieth and into the twenty first century. And essentially, I threw out all my notes and did my own work and, and got into the New Testament and came to recognize that every church in the New Testament outside of Jerusalem was what we would call today a healthy, multi-ethnic, economically diverse church. Men and women of diverse ethnic, economic backgrounds, walking, working, worshiping God together as one. And this, more than the verbal proclamation of the gospel, it was the, this demonstration of the Prince of Peace being able to unite these disparate people groups uh, again, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor, to aggregate them in one church. It, it wasn't so much the proclamation of words, but this good work. Uh, Matthew five sixteen, Ephesians chapter two, verse uh, ten. This good work of bringing diverse people together to walk, work, worship uh, God together as one through faith in Christ. This is what got the attention of the first century, the second, the third, and and ultimately, uh, I began to ask myself the question: If the kingdom of heaven is not segregated then why on earth is the local church? And so in wow. 2001, I, uh, with 
you know, in, in a sense, with that passion uh, to see heaven on earth, as it were, to the degree that it was possible in the local church. I stayed in Little Rock, but yes, went to a very different area of the city, under-resourced, uh, 30% people out or below poverty, 66% of kids without dads, highest violent crime in the city. And and basically what Christianity Day would call four, three years later, a big dream in Little Rock, and that was to bring uh, diverse people together to walk, work, worship him as one. And uh, man, I can't even believe it, but I'm in my 19th year now, and that's essentially what got us started. Mark, I worked at a church called the Dream Center in L.A. that had kind of a, a similar vision to reach out uh, in the way you're describing your church did. What are some of the barriers to creating a church that was not segregated like you described? Did it take time? Did it take relationships? How was this received when you came in seemingly from the outside? Well, it, yeah, um, and I'm familiar with the Dream Center and, and Matthew Barnett and, and what's done on there. It's tremendous work. Um, I think generally speaking, the, the, you can think about it in a couple of ways. First of all, as a church plant, I didn't necessarily, quote unquote, come in from the outside. Um, I had lived in the city eight years. I had relationships across the city, even from my position as a youth pastor, uh, particularly in the black and white community. And, and I didn't come into the 72204 zip code, um, the, the great white hope, if you would. I, I actually, mm. the, the second that my wife and I understood this is what God wanted us to do, um, my first call was to two African-American brothers here in the city, and and one of those joined me in this. We put together a diverse team of people. We never launched the church until at least three ethnicities were being paid. In our case, that was black, white, and Hispanic. And we generated income, uh, both through initial ties and offerings, as well as donations from the outside, to fund five people to launch this as a team. And so I didn't start this as a—I'm actually white, Russian, Jew, and Italian— but, but, you know, identifying my mother wow. as white, yeah, <laughs> fearfully and wonderfully made, right? But it wasn't like a white person coming into the community and starting us work and say, hey, all you diverse people, join me in what God's telling me to do. Gotcha. It, it was a team of people who came with the credibility established through relationships uh, across the board in, in diverse ways and, and to, a, to a community uh, very under-resourced, underserved, and, and established the church. So now that's a church planting model. And so... In, in church transition, if your church is, let's say, an all-white church, uh, yeah, there's a whole lot of other obstacles and challenges, but ultimately it's rooted in trust and transparency, the building of cross-cultural relationships and competence, not imposing your will or your vision on a community, but becoming incarnate with the community so as to understand the needs, the complexities, the challenges, uh, the key players, and build friendships, relationships, develop cross-cultural competence. Uh, in order to make the transition and or to plant in a in a vibrant, effective way. And and this is a big obstacle, Sean, because in the American church, you know, everything is about explosive growth. And this mm. this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. Uh, in fact, the danger of explosive growth is modeled in the church at Jerusalem. If 3,000 people joined pastor, if you're a pastor listening to this con uh, conversation today, if 3,000 people joined your church tomorrow, you would be freaking out. You don't have enough. You don't have enough parking. You do not have enough nursery beds. You do not have enough staff. That's right. And if that was just day one, think about Jerusalem. What explosive growth does is it leads often, more often than not, to internal focus. And this is what the American church chases is explosive growth. This kind, uh, multi-ethnic, economically diverse, uh, uh, socially just and financially sustainable 
uh, beyond tithes and offerings. This kind only comes out through prayer, patience, and persistence, and it takes time. And and you got to be willing to do it. I tell church planners and, and people making this journey, it takes seven to 10 years to move from, from survival to stability in this work, and wow. another seven to 10 to get from stability to sustainability. Um, and, mm. and, uh, and so if anybody's looking for a two, three year quick fix, man, this is not the game for them. Mark, let me explore some of the, the stuff on sustain, making it sustainable. Um, cause you, you talk about in your book, uh, the coming revolution in church economics, you and your co-author Harry Lee lay out a number of facts that you suggest are forcing churches to fundamentally change how they do business. Uh, what are some of those trends that you saw that led you and your team to these conclusions? Yeah, uh, a great question. Well, um, in the book, just to, to um, a quick overview, there's a sociological section, which we'll talk about in direct answer to your question. There's a theological su- uh, section where we deal with seven passages of the New Testament that help us understand why we're why we are doing this here, why we're seeing others do it, and why we're calling people to it. And then, of course, seven directives for how to get it done. But in direct uh, uh, response to your question, uh, Scott, uh, here's, here's just a few, right? So first, a growing burden on the middle class. Um, there, there's a growing burden on the middle class. Every econom- economic person will tell you that uh, today. And, and it, it, middle class is changing. Um, there, there's things like it, within that idea of burden on the middle class. It, you know, I'm, I'm 57 years old. I grew up a single parent, born out of wedlock, selling Avon on the streets at seven. But the ideal Ozzie and Harriet family 50 years ago, 40 years ago, was, you know, mom stayed home with the kids. Dad went to work. A single paycheck paid for everyone's bills and everybody lived a comfortably middle class life. Those days are gone. And, and, and whenever I speak to pastors or audiences about this, I say, how many of you in your household have at least two incomes? I'm telling you, 99% of the hands go up. If I say, how many of you have three or more incomes? I'd tell you 70% of the hands go up. The, the days of one paycheck covering and allowing people to live a middle-class life, those days are gone, increasing burden on the middle class. And by the way, tithes and offerings equate to the single paycheck of the church. That's why it's going to have to develop multiple streams of income. Um, there's only a marginal increase in religious giving, for instance. Um, religious giving is stagnant at best, maybe just a little bit uh, up. But, uh, you know, t- for instance, the average church uh, budget, median church budget fell from 150000 in 2009 to 125000 in 2014. Um, religious giving, for instance, to things like arts, cultures, humanities, uh, these things are on significant increase where religious giving is, is not so. So there's this decline in religious giving or marginal increases in it. Um, there's a bit, but here's a big one. And, and of course I can share more, but there's a shift in generational approaches to giving. In other words, people that are roughly, I'd say 55, 60 and older, the number one way they believe, number one thing that changes the world is money. Um, that's not true with uh, Gen X, millennials, and what will be Gen Z. The lower you go in terms of age, they don't see money as what changes the world. They see volunteerism and product endorsement. That's what changes the world. As the income, and I, I can't remember the exact stat, but I'm going to say, say, you know, uh, 70%, 75% of the wealth in the American church is held by people 55, 60 and older. As that dissipates down to millennials, Gen Z, et cetera, who do not share our opinion that money changes the world, who give on impulse, who believe that volunteerism and product endorsement is what changes the world. This too is going to, is already and will continue to affect uh, uh, church giving, tithes and offerings going down, not to mention the potential of local church 
uh, or local governments taxing church property as a way to generate revenue and or if the federal government at some point steps in through executive order upheld in liberal courts to to basically take away tax exemption for the American church. We are not at all prepared for any of that disruption and in, in the economic system that is the church. And that's what the book is challenging and encouraging for people to understand and consider going forward. So, Mark, you, in light of that, you tell pastors and churches to, quote, stop begging for money. Okay. Tell us more about what you mean by that. I, I take it that doesn't mean that you stop making financial needs known, but you're suggesting a, a whole different approach to funding what goes on in the local church. Yeah, absolutely. It, in fact, it don't, uh, the, the stop begging for money is one of seven directives we are challenging giving to churches, to pastors, even to Christian organizations as a way to think about the house. So one of the directives is, as you mentioned, stop begging for money. I wish I could take credit for that phrase, but I actually said it in the book. You know who I first heard say that? Rick Warren. And he said that at the very first peace initiative, the very first peace initiative conference, I'm going to say, I've got a document in my book, but let's just say seven, eight years ago, I heard him tell an entire audience, you have to stop begging for money. Now, I don't think he was thinking about what that meant in terms of how I take that. But this idea of stop begging for money, in my opinion, has at least a couple uh, applications. Uh, and, and, and one is like this. There, there's a lot of transactional relationships going on in the American church and pastors don't want to admit it. And they may not even be consciously aware of it. But but let's say, you know, um, I've got a member in my church and that that person has a lot of money or, or they're somehow successful. Well, no matter what my interaction, it could be a Bible study. Let's go play golf. Let me take you to lunch at the back of every pastor's head in that convert in that interaction is also the knowledge that this person has money. And part of this goes to, and and that money should be given to the church. Part of this goes to the compartmentalization of the secular and the sacred, where the general attitude, again, whether people are conscious of this or not, is that the role of the business person is to make money and give it to me, the person in ministry, who will then put that money to work for the kingdom. And of course, as as my good friend Helen Mitchell at Biola will tell you, that is not at all accurate, right? They're, the sacred and secular should not be compartmentalized. They, it's like Reese's peanut butter cup, right? But all that's to say is that they're, they're, it, it, the transactional relationships are all over the American church. And, and by understanding what we're teaching in this book, it moves us away from transactional relationships and from this compartmentalization of the sacred and secular. Um, begging for money is often a guilt trip. It can be subtle forms of manipulation. It could be turning every passage in the Bible into a passage on giving or generosity. But, but another thing that has to do with is the tithe. Because the tithe, as we document in the book, and I'm not the first to do this, even Leith Anderson uh, talked about this as head of the National Association of Evangelicals, tithing is not biblically mandated in the New Testament. And any pastor or church that tries to, with theological uh, you know, gymnastics, to demand the tithe as a New Testament biblical commandment is just not being accurate to, exegetical, to, to sound exegesis. So uh, in our book, we call attention to that, show that this is not a commandment. However, as you both know, it is a principle of Scripture that predates the New Testament to the Old Testament. And in our book, we give 10 ways, 10 10 reasons to encourage a tithe uh, of people in the church, but without commanding or demanding it, or if I could say it like this, begging for money. And and that that disingenuous approach to tithing, some pastors who do it will put guilt trips on the congregation, demand it, and it's just not accurate from a New Testament 
standpoint. Again, to you mentioned this already, but yes, tithes and offerings, of course, to encourage that, to encourage for, um, for principal reasons, as we talk about in the book. Generosity, yes. Financial Peace University, yes. Keep doing all that. Do it all. We're just saying going forward, it's even that will not be enough. You're going to have to add an additional leg to your financial, to your sustainability model. And that is how do you leverage church assets, people, money, and buildings to bless the community, advance the common good, the gospel of Jesus Christ, incredible ways in the 21st century, but at the same time generate for-profit ROI. Mark, this is great stuff, and it makes so much sense. When you say stop begging for money, as an apologist, one of the things I frequently hear from critics is, well, churches are just asking for money. So not only give a guilt trip to those inside, but those outside, one more reason to criticize the church. So I really, I love the way you're going with this. But let me ask you a question. You you maintain that churches are economic systems. Now, in one sense, that's obvious. But in the other sense, I think we kind of feel like, is it unspiritual to consider a church an economic system, even though it is? Why is it so hard for people to grasp that? Man, that's a great question. And I, I could literally spend the whole podcast on that, Sean. Um, that, that is such a great question. And, and it, it goes back to an inaccurate understanding of business from the New Testament standpoint. And we deal with that in some of the theological passages. Um, but as you just uh, alluded to in the previous uh, our previous question, the church just gets uh, rung up all the time for being run like a business. So we go back to the 70s and, and, and business principles entering the church, but not so much in terms of making money, but just organizations and systems. And you've got a non-compete clause. You're on my staff. Now you got to sign a non-compete clause and you can't plant a church in 60 miles of, of the church. All these things give the church a bad name and make it seem as if it's all about money, business, whatever. By the way, that's not at all what I'm talking about uh, in this book. In fact, uh, we say in the book, could people take what we're sharing and run with it and kind of build, use it to build their own kingdoms? We're like, absolutely, yes, they can. But but our book isn't doing, people are already doing that, right? I mean, they're already building their own kingdoms on, on erroneous practice of business. We're, we're saying, but it shouldn't keep the rest of us from being smart economically. Now, so so there's all this this divorce, if you will, of business from the church and 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 uh, George Mueller, man, just pray about it, just get on your knees and trust God and have faith. But but think about it like this: if I if you were a pastor and I say, how, how do you guys do worship? And you say, and, and I and I and, and I say, do you have a worship planning meeting? Are you intentional? Do you figure out what songs and who's preaching and what? Oh yeah, we do that. You don't just show up on a Sunday and go. Oh, man, we just show up. We walk around. We wait for the spirit of God to fall, man. That's how we do worship, you know, or or or, or these other things. We're intentional about this stuff. And and we have got to be intentional. There is nothing wrong and everything right about marrying our faith with intentionality in every aspect of the church, including its sustainability. Because if we keep giving things away for free, we're not going to be here in 10 years. And, and so there has to be a smart economic that comes into play. One theological passage, I, I think you guys might enjoy this one. I love this. How does the American church define good stewardship? I'll, I'll give you at least three definitions. One is, hey, there's a hole in the wall here in this building that God has given us this building, this property. There's a hole in the wall. There, there's potholes in the in the parking lot. And we need to fix that because God has given us this building and we need to take care of it, right? Uh, another way is we've got to practice proper accounting uh, principles. We got to get the ECFA a stamp of approval, and let's make sure we've got great accounting uh, for donations, tithes, offerings that come in. And thirdly, let's clearly communicate with people um, the money we receive and where that's going. And the American church, by and large, 
says that's what good stewardship is. And yes, that is all a part of good stewardship. But that's not what the Bible says good stewardship is. The Bible says good stewardship is this. You gave me five talents. Here's your five, and I made you five. You gave me two talents, and here's your two, and I made you two. And the one guy who sat on his asset, think about it, right? One guy sat on his asset, and the master says, wicked slave. Take that one asset away from that person and give it to the person with five who knows what to do with it. I didn't put this in the book, but I have it on good authority. It's kind of wonky, but the American church collectively is sitting on roughly $7 trillion of assets that are being unused. What does that look like? That's a church, for instance, that uh, owns property. They, they own 20 acres and it's sitting there doing nothing. Um, that's a church that came and visited me, a United Methodist church, 75 people in attendance, uh, $2.5 million endowment. And the pastor who just arrived at that church said the people, the 75, are so proud of that $2.5 million endowment, but nobody's getting saved. The community's not being transformed. They don't know what to do with it. And that's why he came here for help. So the church, the American church may be sitting on as much as seven trillion dollars of assets. And imagine if we leverage that, if the American church wakes up to leverage those assets, not to build their own kingdoms, but to advance the kingdom of God, the common good, to put people to work, to repurpose abandoned property, help reduce crime, generate economic economic flourishing in the community. Uh, And all that is Matthew 5, 16. God gets the credit. People see Christ, the future of evangelism. In the 20th century, it was words. The 21st century, it is works of justice and economics that's going to get the attention of the lost. Mark, let me let me take this and be a little bit more specific. This is great stuff. Uh, but but your, your church has a lot of for-profit businesses that are under your umbrella. Um, and you do a lot of creative things with your building to generate income. Um, so t- tell us a little bit about some of the, the ways in which you have changed your economic model specifically to become more economically sustainable. Yeah, you bet. Um, just real quick, you know, it took us 12 years to purchase a building. Um, for the first 10 to 12 years of our church, the more people that joined our church, it cost us money. It didn't bring us more money. It cost us money because of the homeless, the poor, economically challenged, uh, low-income households. And that's that was our clientele. And so it cost us money. And early on, we had to figure out if it's not just going to be me and a couple staff and a janitor with 150 people, if we're going to actually do great work in the community for Jesus, uh, for the name of Christ, we're going to have to figure out how do we make this thing work beyond tithes and offerings. That's what got us into it. Now, uh, to answer your question directly, there's basically, there's three ways that a church can begin to think about leveraging its assets. So one is become a benevolent owner. Uh, One is to monetize existing services and one is to start new businesses. And we do all three of those things here. So becoming a benevolent owner has to do with renting your facility. We don't rent our facility at top dollar. We want to give a break to small business and that, that in turn, they can pass on to the community. It's a principle I talk about both in Disruption and the new book, a principle we defined and, and called benevolent ownership. What does that look like? I rent 50,000 square feet of a 100,000 square foot Kmart to a suburban fitness club. We were able to attract a suburban fitness club to this community of 30% poverty because we didn't charge top dollar on the rent. We charged enough to make half our mortgage payment each month. 
that's what they pay in rent. And because our rent to them was so low, they can charge the community $10 a month for tremendous health, uh, you know, to facilities, a fitness facility, $10 a month, no contract. And that's a, and that led to 6,000 members in the first year. So benevolent ownership is leveraging your property to, to, to bring in business, to, to charge rent, but to charge rent that is reasonable, if not, and certainly below market. So they pass on the savings to the community and everybody wins. The second way is monetize existing services. Every church is already doing things uh, and have line item uh, line items in their budgets where they're doing things that could be monetized. The simplest example, I do it in the, in the next book, uh, is coffee. Uh, in our case, I learned four years ago, I said to our executive pastor, how much does it cost us to give away free coffee on Sunday morning? He said about $200, $250 a month. That's $3,000 a year walking out my front door. Nobody in business gives away stuff for free. Even when they say, hey, come down and I'll give you, they, they go, they go, hey, uh, give me, I'll give you $500 off the car. Come on down and buy one of my cars. I'll give you $500 off, off the sticker price. Well, they're not giving that to you. They Sure, they'll take $500 off the sticker and then they'll charge you $1,500 in the back room on insurance and, and, and other ways. So nobody gives anything away for free. I took church money, went and bought a microwave, uh, tin foil squares, Jimmy Dean sausage biscuits for 12 pack for $10. 95 cents a biscuit. You sell 3,000 of those on a Sunday morning. You make a buck a biscuit. You you erase that line item, and now you have $3,000 to pay, put into youth scholarships in the summer. Um, that you th- There's print shops, janitorial, so all the things churches are already doing could be monetized, and that helps eliminate line items in the budget. More uh, tithes and offerings are then going to direct ministry work in, in, instead of uh, things like a janitorial service or coffee. Still do janitor. Still do coffee, for instance, but you figure out a way to monetize that, puts people to work, creates jobs, ultimately generates income for the church. The last, as you mentioned, is start new businesses. Right now in our church, uh, among other things going on, you're going to love this. We are starting a two-room massage studio, believe it or not, right? A two-room massage body studio. Why? Because a guy on our staff, his wife has been a masseuse for 17 years. They recently moved to the church, uh, to the area and became part of our staff. I took a dumpy area of our old Kmart. We're in a 100,000 square foot former Kmart. I took this dumpy area that would have zero purpose other than the maybe stack files in or something. We created for about $11,000 of church money. We took 11000 and built out two rooms that are going to be turned into a massage studio. Now, you know, in our culture, particularly, you have sex trafficking. You have all these reasons that people could be fearful of going to a massage studio uh, but rather than be fearful of that, we're spinning that because you can come to this church that's very well known in this community and you are, you're safe. You're going to get a great massage. We're going to work on your, your flexibility, your muscle tone and all that stuff at a, an affordable price out of the church where you can feel safe. And those and we're paying the masseuses more than they would make, let's say, at Massage Envy or what have you. And on top of that, the church makes 20 percent of every of, of each massage. So it's a win for the masseuse, the win for the community, and a win for the church. This is just an example of how you can leverage church assets to start a business. Eventually, we'll get that 11000 back, and then we'll be in, in the net profit, if you will. But even if that lady, uh, this couple moves away in three years, now we've got offices we can rent to a council as a counseling suite, or we could rent it to lawyers' offices here. So we turned a, an area of our facility into a business and put a minority business owner, helped her get that business off the ground, 
it creates at least three jobs and will not only erase our 11,000 investment, it'll eventually give us net profit. The community wins, the church wins, and the masseuse wins. Mark, this is such good stuff. We are uh, we are coming kind of near the end of the podcast, and I know people have a ton of questions. Scott and I are looking at each other thinking we want to go for a couple more hours. But one thing people can obviously do is get your your latest book, The Coming Revolution in Church Economics, where you spell this out a little bit. But what kind of practically speaking, what are one or two things moving forward that church, people who go to church, people who are on the board, pastors could do to just start moving their church slowly this direction without feeling overwhelmed by the major task it would take to really get to the area and level you would want churches to get to? Yeah, no, great, uh, great question. Um, one of the, 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 obviously the simple thing I tell pastors is you've just got to understand what we're sharing, what we're talking about. And by the way, I'm not the only pastor or church, church doing this in America. There's outliers that are doing this, but there's to date until this book, there's not been the language and the structure in a sense to generate a movement. And that's what this book will do. Now, having said that, what a pastor, what I tell them all the time, sometimes they'll say, Oh, Mark, you seem so entrepreneurial and and blah, blah, blah. But but man, I'm just a pastor. I just want to teach the word of God. I want to visit people when they're sick. I want to shepherd. And, and so what am I supposed to do? I say, you don't have to, you don't have to be the one to do this, if you will. You just have to be the one to understand the why and the how of this, right? And particularly the why from a sociological standpoint, a theological standpoint. And and then you have to empower business people in a different way than you are in your church. Let them run with this, right? So for instance, how do pastors put business people to work? Again, we've talked about the compartmentalization. Um, if, if I got a business person, number one, many pastors in America are, are already intimidated by business people because it's a different world and they don't know what to do with them except ask them for money. And that's a problem as we talked about. But if I got a business person in the church and I get beyond the, you know, all that stuff and I say, oh, you know, uh, uh, Joe, you're you're such a great businessman. I know you got a, a small business up the street and it's very successful. Um, and, and I know you like the church and we're good friends. You got a big, warm heart and smile. Would you be a greeter? Okay. <laughs> That's, what, That's it. What did I do? What did I just do? I took an entrepreneur and asked him to be an employee in my company. Okay. Or I could say, hey, Joe, you're such a friendly guy and good. You got your business, you got about six employees. You're doing great uh, out there. Um, uh, do you think you could, we've got this thing called first impressions and there's all these moving parts. We're trying to bring new people in, help them get acquainted, get them into new membership. There's all these different moving parts. Do you think you could kind of figure out how that works? What did I do? Or I might be say, sit on our board, be a part of the board. Sure, we need people to figure out first impressions. Sure, we need people to sit on the board. But if I go and ask an entrepreneur, successful business person to do that, you know what I just did? I made him a manager in my company. You know what I want to say to that business guy and what I tell pastors, listen, you go up to that business guy or gal, that man or woman who's successful, entrepreneurial, business-like, and, and you say, hey, Joe, I got $3,000 a year walking out my front door. You think you could figure that out? You think you could erase that $3,000 deficit, return $3,000 on the budget, and who knows, maybe double that. So we're generating $6,000 gross out of that cafe. $3,000 covers the coffee. $3,000 uh, is spent on other things. And now I've got $3,000 to, to not only $3,000 profit net, I've got $3,000 back in my budget. I get $6,000 as a turnaround. You think you could figure that out for me? Whenever I share that, Scott and Sean, uh, whenever I share this with business people and pastors, all the business people, they lurch forward in their chairs. <laughs> they to yeah, it sounds like they, to they totally get and it. And they're like slamming their, their, you know, pounding their fist on the table going, 
Finally, when are you going to let me free me up to be who God's made me to be and to partner with you in this church to make it not only stable, but sustainable long term? So this is what pastors can do. It's just a simple step. Empower these business leaders. Don't tell them what to do. Tell them your problem and let them solve it because they can solve it in five days. What's going to take you five years to figure out? Mark, this is great stuff. And as Sean mentioned, I feel like we're just getting a start on this. We would love to have you come back on with us another time to explore some of this further. This is such good stuff. And we hope, you know, all of our listeners who are on pastoral staffs or pastoring churches or in church leadership, uh, we really hope you you take this to heart uh, and get started on some of these steps that will help your church toward a more financially sustainable future. So, Mark, thanks so much for being with us. This is Great stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, Sean and I, we wish you all the best for Mosaic Church going forward. And whatever disruptions may come from Mosaic Church in the future, uh, we pray God's best for you. Hey, guys, thanks so much for having me. Anytime. We'd love to talk again. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Pastor Mark Demaz, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything. Everything.